Oh, a sapling is a young tree, right? Uh, and when it's planted, it digs its roots down deep into the soil uh, to build a firm foundation. And, and its roots strengthen it, certainly against weather. Or wind, especially in Texas, can blow a, a tree over, no problem at all. Uh, but the roots also draw nutrients and they draw water from the soil uh, that fill it up and help it to grow uh, and to, and to uh, mature. And as the tree matures, it produces leaves and it produces fruit, but it's the burrowing roots that dig deep down into the ground that allow it to produce the leaves and to produce the fruit. And so we've reached that part of Romans now where Paul has schooled his readers in all the points of theology. He's planted and in his readers, hopefully, the roots have grown deep. And now it's time for his students to produce fruit. Now, many scholars, as you know, consider Romans to be uh, the greatest, most complete, most thorough theological treatise uh, ever written. And after 11 chapters that we've spent in Romans together, we can see why. Uh, this chart that we've been referring to on and off uh, can, can show us some of what we've been talking about uh, as, we, as we think back through where we've been, chapters one through three uh, have been all about sin, uh, the great human predicament, which is that we are sinners and that we can do nothing to rescue ourselves from this sin. Not one of us can claim that we have a right to heaven or that God owes us salvation. Uh, we can't demand that God spare us from hell based on anything within us or anything that we have done. God is holy, and we have not, and we are doomed to God's punishment. That's chapter 1 through 3. That's the bad news. But there's good news, and that's chapters 3 through 5. Paul has explained the doctrine of justification by faith. This is the very heart of the gospel. We cannot save ourselves, but praise the Lord, there is someone else who can save us. Jesus Christ came down from heaven. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can spend eternity with him in heaven. Justification just means to have right legal standing before God so that even though we are sinners on the one hand, we can still stand before God because we're not made righteous by ourselves. We're made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the only way that we can stand before holy God is clothed in the blood of Jesus Christ. If we approach God uh, offering anything else but the blood of Jesus Christ for our salvation, we will be turned away. It's not in anything that we have done. It's in what Jesus has done for us. And so that's chapters 3 through 5. Now, God does not immediately take us up to heaven when we're saved, does he? Uh, we're all still sitting here, so obviously not, right? He has a purpose for us being here. But it would be pretty cool, wouldn't it, if uh, we were able to just say our goodbyes uh, and then confess Jesus as our Lord and then whoosh, taken up to heaven, right? But God doesn't work that way. That is not God's plan. We still have to live in this sin-filled, broken world. And so how do we live in it? Well, that's what Paul talked about in chapters 6 through 8. This is the process of sanctification. God gave us his Holy Spirit when he saved us. And, and so uh, chapter 6 is all about how uh, by the Holy Spirit we're empowered against sin so that sin does not have to be the snare to us that it has been. 
and uh, we can have victory over it. And then chapter 7, we don't have to follow the law of Moses anymore. We can live by the law of love thanks to the Holy Spirit. We love God, we love others as Jesus does. And then once we have the Holy Spirit, uh, chapter 8 tells us about living life in the Spirit and how uh, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. So that's uh, chapters 6 through 8. And then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul handled this issue of God's sovereignty uh, in election and yet human responsibility uh, together. God is sovereign in election. He decides who is saved. And at the same time, we are responsible to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we are accountable if we reject Jesus as our Savior. And so it's a paradox that we can't fully understand on this side of heaven. It's almost like parallel tracks, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, both true at the same time. And in these chapters, Paul also laid out God's plan for Israel. God elected Israel in the past. That's Romans chapter 9. But Romans chapter 10, in the present, uh, Paul's present and ours, uh, Israel has rejected the gospel. But through Israel's rejection of the gospel, uh, the Gentiles have come in great numbers to be saved. But Romans chapter 11, in the future, God will graft Israel back into the olive tree of his salvation and grace. Before my ordination uh, in the E-Free Church, I had to write a paper on all the uh, major ologies of Christian theology. And so uh, some of the topics that I covered were uh, anthropology, uh, the study of man's lost condition as a, as a sinner, totally depraved and unable to contribute anything to his own salvation. Uh, Christology, the study of Jesus Christ, the, the second person of the Trinity and the eternal God who came to save a soteriology, soter is the Greek word for uh, salvation. It's the study of how God can save sinful humanity from the penalty of their sins. Uh, pneumatology, pneuma is the word for spirit, uh, life in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and even eschatology, which is not up on the slide, but uh, in end times, we talked about how God will uh, graft Israel back in. So Paul has covered all of the major ologies, any of these that we want to talk about. They've all been covered uh, by Paul in the book of Romans. And so uh, what's left now is to talk about the so what of it all. So what, Paul, Romans 1 through 11. What do we do with all of this knowledge? Uh, that's what chapters 12 to 16 are about. Trees use their deep roots to produce fruit. What do Christians do now that we've dug our roots deep, now that we believe? And so that's the last major section of chapter 12 to 16. Service, live in a way that pleases God through the love for him and unity and service to each other. So today, we're only going to cover verses 1 to 2 of chapter 12. I consider these to be Paul's thesis statement for the rest of the book. Uh, Paul urged his readers what to do. First of all, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. Just like if we love God and love others, all the other commandments follow. Remember that Jesus said when he was asked, what are the greatest commandments or what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love others, all the others fall under that. Uh, here, if we present ourselves as living sacrifices to God, all that follows chapter 12, verse 2, will fall under that. Uh, so what does God demand of us in light of his mercies? He demands us, all of us, every bit of us, uh, he wants every 
bit every single part of us. And then he also told them how to do it. How do, we, how do we offer ourselves as living sacrifices? We do it by not being conformed to this world, but by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, so verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now the idea behind this verse and really all that follows here is spiritual sacrifice as worship to God, uh, what we do for God, considering what God has done for us. So let's talk about the connection between doctrine and duty. You know, it's, it's very easy, as I showed you on the chart. We, we could separate Romans into two separate sections, right? Chapters 1 through 11 are the doctrinal section, the foundational truths upon which Christianity is built. And then there's the second section, verses uh, chapters 12 through 16. What do we do now in light of this practical application? We could separate them into two separate sections. Uh, but we have to understand that we can never truly separate duty from doctrine or doctrine from duty. They go hand in hand. They go together. Because if you have uh, no doctrine and all duty, you'll have no theological foundation for the things that you do. You won't know why you're serving, why you're doing these good deeds that you're doing. But if you have no duty and all doctrine, well, you'll be a very well-educated but a useless Christian who doesn't do anything uh, to enhance God's kingdom. So duty flows from doctrine. Remember that. Duty flows from doctrine. You have to have both. You have to have doctrine. Doctrine is supremely important. We have to understand it because only then will duty flow from it. So trees produce fruit because they have deep roots, right? They would not produce the fruit without the root. Uh, and so a healthy tree with deep roots will produce fruit. It has to. And so will we if we have deep theological roots. And so that's the connection. There's a connection between what we know and who we are as Christians and then what we do. And that's why Paul started verse 1 with the word, therefore, to connect uh, chapters 12 through 16 through, to 1 through 11. Uh, in view of God's mercies, in, in gratitude for all he's done for us, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. And so that's the start of the practical application section of the book. The therefore connects and binds the theology of chapters 1 through 11 to the application of chapters 12 through 16. All right, let's talk about the meaning of sacrifice. Sacrifice is the major theme that supports the, the rest of the book. And so, uh, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice. That was meaningful uh, to his listeners because in the Old Testament, God uh, allowed people to sacrifice a bull or a ram or a goat uh, to allow people to atone for their sin. God required a death, a sacrifice, and it was the blood of the offering that atoned for the sin. After a burnt offering, or a guilt offering, or a sin offering, the entire animal was burnt up. There was none of that animal left. It was burnt up completely. Uh, so the worshiper offered it all to God, every bit of it. And God displayed his mercy to forgive sin, but he required a sacrifice. Now, in the New Testament, God offered a new way for us uh, to have God's wrath against us satisfied. Salvation has always been by faith, but the content of the faith is new after Jesus. 
In the Old Testament, believers demonstrated their belief by uh, obeying the law and adherence to the sacrificial system when they failed. In the New Testament, believers demonstrate their faith by belief in Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself for our sins, and Jesus allowed sinful men to nail him to a cross to atone for our sins, where he died a gruesome death on our behalf. And so we know a lot about Jesus's life, right? He did a lot of good works. Uh, we could list them. He, he uh, turned the water into wine to spare that, uh, that wedding host the embarrassment of running out of wine. Uh, he freed many people from demon possession. He fed the hungry. Uh, he preached the gospel wherever he went. He healed the sick. Uh, his miracles were compassionate. They were tender acts of love. But to atone for sin, God required his sacrificial death. He had to die. He had to give all of himself. And he paid all of the debt by giving all of himself. So God is merciful. He offers us mercy through Jesus' blood. And we come, when we come to the communion table here every Sunday, we remember that Jesus said, this is my body which has been broken for you. This is the cup of my blood which has been poured out for you. Now, I think that in our culture, we have a distorted view of what the word sacrifice means. We think sacrifice means inconvenience, don't we? Sometimes we think sacrifice means inconvenience. For example, uh, if we serve in some way, if we serve in the church, if we volunteer at a local soup kitchen, uh, if we volunteer uh, at a homeless shelter, we call that a sacrifice. And that is a skewed view of the word. That's not the biblical view of the word sacrifice. Uh, after we serve at the local church or the local soup kitchen, how much of us is left? A hundred percent of us is left, right? We have not sacrificed ourselves. Uh, we have served. We, we may have spent some time that we could have used somewhere else, or maybe we've lost some sleep, but we haven't sacrificed, at least not in the biblical sense. We've served. We've been inconvenienced, uh, but, and, but, but that's not sacrifice. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do these things. We most certainly should do these things. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. But let's understand that sacrifice requires all of us, not just a part of us and not just for a time. That's why Paul said, present your bodies as living sacrifices. So you know, God doesn't ask most of, of us to die. I mean, if he does ask us to die, well, we'll die for him. But that's a sacrifice we can only offer once. We can only die once. A living sacrifice presents itself continuously to God. Continuous describes an action that never ceases. Always, we are always being a living sacrifice to God. And we're to be a holy sacrifice. To be holy means to be set apart from God, to be wholly other uh, from anything else. We are completely dedicated to God. We're not to divide ourselves between what God wants sometimes and our fleshly desires other times. Uh, to be holy means that we are 100% set apart, sanctified, consecrated for God. That's what Paul is urging his brothers and sisters in Christ to do. A dead sacrifice can't do anything, right? The priest would offer the sacrifice, slaughter it on the altar, and then he would burn it up according to the Levitical regulations. 
But according for us, as someone has famously said, the problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar, right? Uh, and that is most certainly true. Uh, a dead sacrifice can't do that, but we can. And we choose whether we want to stay on the altar or crawl off of it again. Uh, being a living sacrifice requires that we die, not physical death, but a death to self and our desires in favor of God's desires. Uh, it means that inconvenience or Perhaps if we want to be more kind, to call them divine interruptions uh, are things that are, uh, are, are part of our lives, not just a periodic now and then act of service. It means that we do whatever God needs us to do when he asks, uh, even if it's costly or inconvenience, uh, inconvenient to us. Uh, Paul called this spiritual service, what do you call it? Worship. This is how we worship God. We worship God by giving, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice continually to him. And so such worship requires every bit of us, not just a part of us. And when we fully commit our minds and our bodies to the Lord, he'll be pleased. Now let's just step back a second. And, and recognize, remember, that Paul was writing this letter to Christians, right? He called them brethren. And so these people are already saved. The, these spiritual acts of service and worship are not going to earn them salvation, and nor are they going to earn us salvation, right? We understand that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves by our good works. So we do these acts of spiritual service as an act of worship as saved believers, not to earn our salvation, but in thankfulness to God for it. We won't earn our salvation, but we are doing it uh, to worship God, to thank God for his great mercy to us and to serve his people. And so we are building up the body of Christ by our service and through our service. We build up the body of Christ by our service to each other. We build each other up. We look after each other. We take care of each other as brothers and sisters in the church. That is what the church is for. We worship God. We look out for. We take care of each other. We help each other carry each other's burdens. And we build up the body of Christ through our service by attracting other people to Christ when they look at us uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, that says people uh, will see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So uh, our service ought to be attractive to unbelievers, and we build up the kingdom through our service to Christ to unbelievers to see uh, our good works and glorify God. Now, this kind of service does not come naturally to sinful, selfish people, right? We don't all roll out of bed, first thing on our minds. Uh, how can I uh, serve, my, uh, serve uh, somebody else and, and forget about uh, my needs today? That's not the first thing on most of our minds. Uh, the only way to do it, the only way to live out this confession of our faith is to follow Paul's prescription in verse two. He says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we've already said salvation is 100% God's doing. If he hadn't elected us and called us and done a work in us, we could not have been saved. But spiritual transformation is different. Spiritual transformation involves a choice on our part, and it involves cooperation with the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul commands us uh, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. 
so we're going to talk about what that means. We're going to talk about how we do it, and we're going to talk about its results. So what it means. J.B. Phillips, uh, whose name many of you know, uh, famously translated this verse, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now, maybe some of you have heard the illustration about a fish and water. <clears throat> fish don't know that they are in water. If you tried to explain water to a fish, he would say, what's water? He would have no idea. His world is water. He would not know anything about water unless he jumped out of his fishbowl and saw the water from the outside. And so uh, they just can't see it from, from the, the habitat that they live in. And that's how our culture affects us. We go on and, and we don't understand that, that the world that we are living in has an effect on us. We are so surrounded by it that we don't notice how it influences us. And this, this verb here, be conformed, is in the passive voice. The passive voice is when the action is happening to the subject rather than the, the, the subject doing the action of the verb. So we are being conformed by the world. The action is happening to us. Something external is exerting pressure on us, even if we're unaware of it, and conforming it us into its mold. Just like jello takes the form of the mold that you pour it into, uh, we will take the shape of the world if we allow ourselves to be conformed to it and don't do something uh, to stop that flow of, of tide. The world will squeeze us into its mold will be like the fish that doesn't know it's in water. We'll just swim merrily along, content and conform to our surroundings. And eventually what will happen is that we will accept the world's morality and its standards of behavior and we'll call what is evil good, or at least we'll turn a blind eye to it. That's happening all over the place in our culture today. Even in the Christian church, that is happening. And we'll become increasingly desensitized to all the wickedness and all the evil in the world because we're just so used to it. We won't be enraged by it anymore. We'll just say, oh, another school shooting, another day, another school shooting. And it will be desensitized to it. That can happen even to us. And sooner or later, uh, we will participate in the wickedness of the world somehow. Uh, we will uh, we'll be uh, influenced by it, we'll think it's no big deal, we'll become desensitized to it, and then we'll participate in it. That's the cycle. And that, those are the results of being conformed to this world. We cannot be content with that, brothers and sisters. We must be transformed. To be transformed is completely different. Uh, the word for transformed, to be transformed, is metamorpho, uh, where we get our word metamorphosis from, right? Uh, it means a complete change from the inside out. When a caterpillar emerges from his cocoon, he's now a butterfly. He's not a caterpillar anymore. A complete change, a complete metamorphosis has happened. Metamorpho is also the same word that Matthew and Mark used when they talked about Jesus's transfiguration. Jesus was completely transformed before their eyes. He became translucent. His clothes became whiter than any launderer on earth could ever make them. That's what has to happen to us. Complete transformation. We have to be transformed. Only by a complete transformation uh, will we ever be willing to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice we must not allow ourselves to be conformed to the standard of this world by the outside pressure that it exerts on us. We have to be transformed by spiritual growth internally from the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. So that's what it means. How do we do it?
Paul says, that we do it by the renewing of our mind. We'll be transformed by the continual renewal of our mind. It would be nice if Paul laid out a five-step plan here for how to renew our minds, wouldn't it? Step one, do this. Step two, do this. He doesn't do that, though. But we can get some clues from a couple of his other letters about what it means uh, to renew our minds. Uh, We learn that it's by the Holy Spirit and it's by the reading of Scripture. So let's see by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And through scripture. Ephesians 6:17. take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So renewing our minds means to change the way we think. You know, you don't have to teach a child how to selfishly hoard his toy and not share it with his friends, right? He's born with that selfish desire to not share with other people. And parents try to teach their kids, now, share your toy, share your toy, share your toy. We say that all the time as parents, but it's very hard to erase the old hard drive and download a new one, isn't it? Uh, And we know that ourselves, even at our age, uh, it's hard to download a new hard drive. We can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who renews our minds and transforms us into the likeness of Christ. And by reading the scripture as well, the Holy Spirit illuminates the scripture for us, helps us to understand what it means and give us discernment. And day by day, uh, it does transform us. It does renew our minds. So what is it? What is spiritual transformation? How do we do it? And now its results. The result of our transformation is that we will prove what the will of God is. Now, I find that to be a bit of a hard translation. That's hard to understand. I think a better translation is to discern or to know God's will. God doesn't need us to prove his will or to approve his will, but through the process of spiritual transformation, we will get on board with God's will. We will follow what he wants, and that's what Paul wants for his readers because God's will is good, and it is perfect, and it is pleasing. And the end result of all this is that our will will agree with God's. We will obey him with our minds. We will our bodies uh, to do what they might not want to do. Now, when I'm running in a long race, every fiber in my body is begging me to stop. Stop running. This hurts. Stop running. This hurts. Stop running. Uh, Every fiber in my body says that, but my mind controls my body and my will wants to finish this race. So my mind tells my body, keep running. I don't care that it hurts. Keep running. Eventually you will finish the race. Uh, That is how our mind controls our body. We can't allow uh, our, our, our weak bodies to control our minds. Our minds have to control our bodies. So by renewing our minds, we can offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. We can stay on the altar. We can live God's way rather than crawling off that altar and choosing comfort or sin or whatever it is that keeps us off of the altar. So Paul told them, what to do in verse one, offer your bodies as living sacrifices uh, in view of God's mercy. He told them how to do it in verse two, by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Brothers and sisters, this is what our theological training 
should lead to. Uh, we are students of the Bible. We are well-versed in Scripture, some of us more than others, but, but the roots are being dug down deep into the soil. Our theological roots run deep, and then this tree of ours, uh, supported by the roots, must produce fruit. So let's talk about some applications. What does sacrifice mean for you and for me? We can look at sacrifice in one of two ways. Uh, we can ask, have I done enough? Or we can say, is there anything else that I can do? Two completely different attitudes towards sacrifice. Uh, offering our bodies as living sacrifices does not mean uh, serving God enough by our own estimation of whatever enough is, uh, but serving God without ceasing. It means that we don't own a minute of our time or a dollar of what is in our bank accounts. It all belongs to God. So we serve God. We give it continuously back to him. That means we never say, I've done enough. Let's let someone else do that. Uh, if we all had a what else can I do attitude rather than a have I done enough attitude, there'd be a whole lot less need in the world. And we'd look a whole lot more like Jesus. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, uh, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Uh, if we do that, brothers and sisters, we will be the living sacrifices that God requires. Well, what is holding us back? There are lots of reasons that we might not want to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Maybe we don't trust God enough to replenish the funds that we've given away. Uh, maybe we're tired and we don't want to spend the energy required to serve. Maybe we just don't feel like serving because we prefer our comfort over service. Uh, any of those reasons could hold us back, and I'm sure do, uh, on a daily basis. Uh, Maybe, though, it's that we haven't understood the sacrifice that Jesus made to save us, to pay for our sins, and, and the requirements of a blood-bought saint like you and I are. Jesus was a living sacrifice for us. He died on the cross to purchase our salvation, and he told his disciples, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must pick up his cross and follow after me. He said, whoever does my will is my brother and my sister and my mother. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God is not asking us to die for him. He's asking us to live for him. He wants us to live for him, to be a living sacrifice. So how can we continue to transform our minds? We have to be in the word. We understand that. God molds our minds and conforms us to the image of his son through the revelation of himself through the Bible. Do we want to know who God is? Do we want to know what he is like? Uh, do we want to know how to be like him? Well, we have to have daily time in the Bible. Uh, we also have to learn to yield to God's will. Uh, we make a thousand decisions every day uh, to do it God's way or to do it our way, to serve him in his way or to do it the way our flesh wants us to do. As we remain in the word, as we remain uh, in prayer, as we are guided by the spirit, minute by minute, decision by decision, we will become increasingly transformed and yielded to God's will. Over time, there will be less of a clash between God's will and our will. God's will becomes our will as we continue to submit to him. He asks us to be a living sacrifice for him. And that's just what we will want to be. And as our minds are transformed and as our will merges with God's will, 
we will offer ourselves the way we should, the way Jesus offered himself to pay for our sins. So my question to all of us today, as we think about what all this means, is how will you, how will I be a living sacrifice to the Lord Jesus today? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this section of Romans where you teach us what is required, Lord. God, you demanded all from Jesus Christ, every bit of Jesus Christ. And we, as Christians, as followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, have to understand that this is not cheap grace. This is not easy believism, easy salvation. Lord, salvation is expensive. It costs you your son. And Lord, it should cost us something too. Help us, Lord, to merge our wills with yours, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, Lord, to be the people that you have created us to be. Lord, to become more like Christ every day. Show us even today, Lord, how we ought to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.